The following is a sermon by Pastor Todd Dykstra, teaching pastor of Maranatha Bible Church of Comstock Park, Michigan. For more information, go to mbcmi.org. Let's open our Bibles to Matthew 13. Matthew chapter 13, the last couple Sundays, we have been looking at the parable of the soils. And just a reminder, these parables are describing to us what the age between Christ's first and second coming is going to be like, this mystery form of the kingdom that we are presently living in. And for the last two weeks, we have looked at the parable of the soils, and we've looked at the different kinds of responses that we should expect in this age. There will be some who wholeheartedly reject the truth, that's the hard soil, there are Some who make an external profession, giving some initial response to the gospel, but later falling away, showing that they were only pretenders, false believers. Only the last soil, only the good soil refers to true believers because it is the only soil that produces fruit. And we said last week the last couple Sundays, that it is fruit that is the ultimate test of salvation. It is not what something happened, what you think happened to you decades ago. It is not some verbal profession you make. It is not some emotional experience you would look to as evidence of your salvation. It is fruit. Christ in you. The Holy Spirit producing change from the inside out. That is fruit, and that is the only indispensable test of genuine discipleship. And so what we've seen in the parable of the soils is that most will reject the gospel. Some will receive it, and those who do receive it are those who bear fruit. If we're honest, however, it's sometimes hard to tell who's truly trusted Christ as Savior, and who are merely pretending. I've had multiple conversations with people who have asked about this. How how do you know if someone is saved? And that is a hard discussion because there are many who look the part, many who actually identify with the kingdom externally, but are not actually a part of it. We saw that in the parable of the soils. They are pretenders. They are spiritual counterfeits. And that should not surprise us at all because Satan counterfeits the real thing. 2 Corinthians 11 verses 14 and 15, Paul says, No wonder even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. This is what Satan does. He is a counterfeiter. He loves to sow seeds in this world that look externally like the real thing but are not the real thing. And it's difficult to tell the difference sometimes between the sheep and the goats. And the reason for that is not that believers sometimes look like the world, that should not be the case, but the flip side, that is that the ungodly often appear to be righteous. And so it makes it difficult at times to distinguish between 
true believers and false believers. The scripture is very clear about this. That in the age in which we live, we will live as believers, we will live right alongside sons of the evil one. And living in this age between the two arrivals of Christ, we are going to live right next to those who don't know Christ. In other words, we could say it this way, that good and evil are going to coexist in this mystery age of the kingdom. There will be no separation during this age. Satan is active. He is an enemy. He is prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking those that he would like to devour. And he will stop short, he will not stop short of doing anything he can to prevent the word of God from being sown into the hearts and the lives of people. And he will create some who are false believers. And those of us that know and love the Lord Jesus Christ, we're going to live right alongside of them. That's what this parable that we're coming to this morning is all about. It's the parable of the wheat and the tares. And what Jesus wants us to know is you're going to dwell right alongside those who are sons of the devil. But that doesn't thwart God's kingdom. That doesn't mess at all with God's plan. It keeps moving forward and it keeps marching on. And he's going to tell us how we need to respond to those in our life that don't know Christ And we need to hear this because sometimes we don't always respond properly. And so we come this morning to parable number two in these kingdom parables. It's described for us in verses 24 to 30, and it's going to be explained for us in verses 36 to 43. And Jesus wants us to know that we're going to live in close proximity to those who do not know Christ, and we need to think through how to properly respond. Now, put yourself, in the, put yourself in the shoes of the disciples for just a moment. They, along with many others in Israel, would have been looking forward to a kingdom which they thought would be entirely pure, with no unbelievers in it. That's what they were anticipating, and we understand why they would have been anticipating this, because back in Jeremiah 31, when the new covenant is promised, it says this, Jeremiah 31, verse 33, God says, I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and they will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them. Now put yourself in the mindset of a Jewish person. In that moment, they are thinking when the kingdom comes, it's going to be pure. Everyone's going to know the Lord. Everyone's going to embrace the Messiah. They're all going to know him from the least to the the greatest. But what they didn't know is that the kingdom would be postponed because their people rejected the Messiah. And so what they didn't understand is that there's going to be a postponement of the kingdom and an intervening period where not everyone's going to know the Lord. And guess what? We're living in that age right now. The kingdom has not come. 
It's still future. We're looking forward to it. When Christ returns and establishes it at his second coming, then that will be true. It's not true today. And so we are living in an age in which the king has been rejected by his people. And living in this age are the sons of the kingdom and the sons of the devil right next to each other. One writer says this, Satan sows his people everywhere. We who belong to the kingdom exist in the same realm as unbelievers. We breathe the same air, we eat the same food, we drive the same highways, we live in the same neighborhoods, we work at the same factories, we go to the same schools, we visit the same doctors, we shop at the same stores, we enjoy the same warm sun, and we are all rained on by the same Rain. Everywhere we go, every sphere in which we live, we as sons of the kingdom of Christ rub shoulders with sons and daughters of the kingdom of the evil one. And sometimes it's hard. Let's all admit it. Sometimes it's very difficult. And in our flesh, we think we want to do something. We want to respond in a certain way. We want to sin in a certain way, actually. We want to treat them in a way that's not kind, that's not loving, that's not gracious. We actually want to become God's executioners, in a sense. And we're going to learn today from the parable of the tares, we are not God's hand of judgment. That's not our role, that's not our place, that is not our position. We are not to condemn the world, we are not to force the world to reform, we are not to demand that the world live by the spiritual principles of the kingdom, we are not to take it upon ourselves to uproot unbelievers. And we need to hear this message because sometimes we're tempted to do this. Think for just a moment of the people in your life right now that do not know Christ. And think about the most difficult of those people. And think about when you're walking in the flesh, how you want to respond to them. Jesus is gonna tell us that it is sinful for us to be their judge and their jury. That's not our place. And so we're going to learn this morning that whatever we might want to do to them in our flesh, we must wait. For the king to return and for him to separate the wheat from the chaff. And so we come this morning to the parable of the tares. It's got a number of similarities to the parable of the soils. But it's got a number of differences as well. Let me share just a few of those with you. There's a number of similarities. Both parables involve a sower. Both parables involve a field. Both parables involve a seed and a crop and the evil one. But there's a lot of differences. In the parable of the sower, all the seed is good, but in the parable of the tares, some of it is good and some of it is bad. 
in the parable of the sower, the evil one is the one who snatches away the good seed. In this parable, he's actually the one who's planting the bad seed. And so in the parable of the soils, you have good seed and good and bad soil. In the parable of the tares, you have good and bad seed in good soil. So I want to walk through these verses with you. We're going to look first at the parable itself, and then we'll give the explanation of it. Two points that will help us as we go through here. Two points that help us understand our relationship to the lost world. Two points that will flesh out how it is that we are to respond to those around us in this world, in this kingdom, who don't know Christ. So let's look, first of all, at the parable and its details. That's point number one. And then we'll look at point number two, the principle and its implications. So point number one is the parable and its details. Come to verses 24 to 30. Let me just read this. You can follow along. Jesus presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. The tares of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. The slaves said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, for a while you are gathering up tares. You may uproot the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest, and in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. Notice in verse 24 how this parable begins. It says that Jesus began by saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to. This is what parables are. They are earthly stories with heavenly meanings, that they're real scenarios, they're real situations, or could be real, that are brought alongside spiritual realities to help us understand these spiritual realities. That's exactly what Jesus is doing here in Matthew 13. He is taking stories, he is laying them alongside spiritual truths to help us comprehend these realities. Notice the story, it's pretty easy to understand. It doesn't really need a lot of explanation, but let's briefly walk through it. Look at verse 24. He says, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. Pretty easy to understand, especially because we just looked at the parable of the soils, which also began with a man sowing. It's very similar in this case. It's a man with a bag of seeds slung over his shoulder, and he is walking throughout the field, and he is throwing good seed onto the ground. This is where the similarities end, in a sense. Notice verse 25, there's an enemy. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. This man is an enemy. He is not a friend of the sower. He is a 
an enemy, a sworn enemy of this farmer, and he waits until it's dark, he waits till it's quiet, he waits till everyone's asleep, and he goes into this man's field, and he does something that is unconscionable. He oversows the man's field with weeds. Look at verse 25 again. While the men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat. The word sowed here is different than the word sowed in verse 24. Listen to the difference. You can hear it. In verse 24, the word sowed is sparrow. In the verse 25, the word is episparrow. In the first case, the sower broadcast his seed into the fields, and in the second case, the enemy comes and he sows his weeds over top of them. That's episparrow. It means to sow in addition to, or to sow on top of, to, or, or to sow afterward. That's what's happening. The farmer has planted his seeds. It is dark. The enemy comes he throws his seeds of weeds, tares, into this man's field. What kind of weed is this? Most scholars believe this weed is what is known as a darnel, also referred to as bearded darnel or darnel ryegrass. ryegrass. It is a kind of weed that looks exactly like wheat. That's very important for you to understand. Remember that piece. This is a weed, a tear that is very hard to distinguish in the early stages of growth from the wheat itself. In fact, in the early stages, it looks identical. It bears no wheat seed in reality, and you can't really tell the difference until it comes toward the very end, and you realize this is not real wheat. In fact, it's called false wheat, or in other terms, bastard wheat. It's illegitimate. It's not the real thing. And you might be interested to know that this kind of weed is poisonous to humans and animals. Now, do you see how deadly this is? Verse 25 says, the man does this, and he went away. No one knew. Under the cover of darkness, no one could detect it. No one understood what, what had taken place. It wasn't immediately obvious that this had occurred. And so you can see how this is a serious thing. In fact, in that day, this was actually outlawed. Rome had a law against this. You couldn't salt another person's field, nor could you oversow it with weeds, because this was, a, this was an act of sabotage. You can imagine, just as these weeds would grow up with the Wheat itself, to have that mixed in, would essentially render the whole crop useless. This would cause the farmer to lose his crop, to lose his livelihood, to lose his business. It would bankrupt a farmer. It was that serious. But that's what the enemy has done. Look at verse 26. When the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares 
became evident also. No one knew it at the beginning. No one could tell it at the beginning. It wasn't until they get to the end, almost to the harvest, as the plants finally reveal the fact of what they actually are. The wheat finally bears a wheat head or a wheat ear. You can see the seeds. The weed doesn't do that. It produces something that's kind of like that, but vastly different. And so it's only until you get to the harvest. It's not until you get to the harvest that you understand what has taken place. Verse 27, the slaves of the landowner came and said to him, sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? They would have been the first to understand this. They're out in the fields. They're watching this in a sense. They're watching the crops grow and they get to the harvest and they begin to notice sowed in amongst all of these good wheat plants are devastating weeds. They ask, how could this have happened? Verse 28, the sower says to them, an enemy has done this. And the slave said to him, do you want us then to go and gather them up? You see, the farmer understands. He gets it. He knows what's taken place. He knows that this was not some natural thing. He knows that this was not some strange plant mutation. These were not contaminated seas. In an instant, he knows that this is an act of sabotage by his enemy. And so his slaves come up with a plan. Let's go in and just pull them all out. You Got to appreciate their zeal, don't you? Let's go fix this. This is their immediate reaction. They, they, could, they could see that there's a problem here, and they wanted immediately to separate the tares from the wheat. Just get them out, remove them, destroy them. That was their reaction. And notice what the farmer says. Verse 29, no. For while you are gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. You see, the sower knows something about this. He, he knows that when they grow together, the roots of the weeds entangle with the roots of the wheat. And if you're going to pull one up, you're going to naturally pull the other one up. You're going to destroy good wheat in pulling up the weeds. It's too difficult at this point to separate them. It's too difficult to pull the weeds out without rooting out some of the wheat with them. And not only that, but some of the good seed would not mature as quickly. And so the danger would be that in pulling up the weeds, some of the good crop that had not yet matured would be mistaken for tares because there's no mature grain yet to detect that. So you're going to destroy much of the good crop. You're going to add to the problem by pulling out the good seed, the good plants. And he says, wait. Verse 30, here's the other plan. Allow both of them to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. He says, you got to wait. I understand your zeal. I understand your passion. I understand you want to make this right. I understand how you want to quickly solve this problem, but you've got to wait. And understand, if you react too quickly, you're going to do much damage, so, so wait until the harvest. And when the harvest comes, then you can cut the stalks of the weeds 
You'll be able to identify them much more clearly then. You can gather them all up. You can put them in bundles. You can throw them in a big fire. And then you can collect my wheat and you can put it in the barns. And everything will be all right. That's the story. Pretty simple. Pretty basic to understand, but clearly Jesus has much more in mind than what meets the eye. There's something beyond the surface here. There's a spiritual truth that Jesus wants us to understand. There are spiritual realities that he's communicating in this parable. And that brings us to point number two, the principle and its implications. Point number one is the parable and its details. Point number two then is the principle and its implications. And you're going to have to come down now to verse 36. We're going to come back to the parable of the mustard seed and the leaven next Sunday. But for now, come down to verse 36 where Jesus gives the interpretation. He tells them what it means. Now remember, parables that are not interpreted are riddles. Remember, we said that parables are meant to, on the one hand, reveal truth to those whom he wants to reveal it to and to conceal truth to those that he wants to hide it from. Jesus is hiding truth from the Jewish leaders. He is judging them for their rejection of him in chapter 12, and so he is not going to give them the interpretation. He pulls back with his disciples, verse 36, says he leaves the crowds, he goes into a house, Probably Peter's mother-in-law's house in Capernaum. And the disciples say, explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. And so he does. Picture the scene. It's Jesus, the twelve, in a house by the seashore, and he begins to unveil the meaning of this parable, starting in verse 37. He said, the one who sows the seed is the son of man. So let's just take these one at a time. They're very easy. He tells us what the whole parable means. He identifies what each part of the parable means. So just let's notice it. It's very simple. He tells us. First of all, the sower is Jesus. He's the son of man. He's the Lord himself. He's the one who can rescue sinners. He's the only one who can rescue sinners. He's the only one who can plant sons of the kingdom. This is Christ. He's the sower. Verse 38. And the field is the world. The field is the world. Now, You may have heard this parable preached before, and you may have heard that the field is the church. It's not. How do you know that? Because he says in verse 38, the field is the world. It's not the church. But some people's reasoning goes like this. Well, clearly the world is full of Unbelievers, the only place that Satan can sow seeds is in the church, so it must be the church. The only place that he can still sow seeds is within the body of Christ, so they would say that Satan is sowing counterfeits in the church. Well, here's the problem with that. Number one, it's not what it says. (laughs) Number two, 
if that's what it says, then the meaning would be we should leave false believers alone and just let God sort it out in the end, and that would contradict church discipline. The Bible's very clear that the church is to practice church discipline. Matthew 18, we'll see it in a few chapters. The church is to confront those in love and grace and kindness and patience and gentleness. It is to confront those professing believers who are caught in sin. A church that does not do that is not a healthy church. 1 Corinthians 5 tells us to do the same thing. 2 Thessalonians 3 tells us to do the same thing. Titus 3 tells us to do the same thing. Healthy churches lovingly confront professing believers who are caught in sin. So if you say that this is the church, then this would rule out church discipline, which is not the case at all. The field is not the church. The field is the world. Now, there's an implication here. The church is in the world. So Satan certainly does sow his tares outside in the world, but sometimes Satan sows his tares inside the church as well. And I have to confess to you, this is one of the most sobering things to think about. Do you realize what Jesus is saying? The field is not the church, but the church is in the world. So it, there is a possibility, not just a possibility, there's a probability that Satan has sowed false converts in the church. That, that means that it is possible for, for there to be people in the body of Christ, in the visible church, not the invisible church, the visible church, who are here Sunday after Sunday and week after week and month after month and year after year and perhaps decade after decade and are not the real thing. We're not converted. And I confess to you, if there's something that haunts me as a pastor, it's this. The reality that perhaps here, even in this room this morning, there are some who are sitting here hearing the word of God and sitting under the preaching of the truth and singing songs and yet are spiritual counterfeits. I pray that's not you. I pray that it's not any of us sitting here this morning and hearing these words Jesus is the sower, the field is the world. Verse 38, and as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom. The good seed are believers. Notice, by the way, this is the difference between the previous parable and the previous parable, the seed was the word of God, the gospel that went out into the world. Here the seed is not that. The seed is people. The seed is believers. These are those who belong to Christ and his kingdom. They're his. He's purchased them. He's redeemed them. They belong to him. So the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. Notice verse 38. And the tares are the sons of the evil one. The tares are unbelievers. 
They could be flat-out unbelievers, rank unbelievers, like the hard soil in the parable of the soils, or they could be pretenders, like we saw in the previous parable as well, those who make an initial interest in spiritual things but eventually fall away. It could be either one of those things, but I want you to notice something very clearly. In verse 38, there are only two categories of people. Either you are a son of the kingdom of Christ or you are a son of the evil one. There's no other options. There's no middle ground. There's no neutrality. There's no other possibilities. There's no third category. You are either a son of the kingdom of Christ or you are a son of the child and a child of the devil. That's it. And I would ask you this morning, which one are you? Are you a son or a daughter of the kingdom, or do you still belong to the evil one? Verse 39, notice the enemy is Satan, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. These are Satan's children. They belong to him. By the way, this condition of the kingdom was never revealed in the Old Testament. I said that a few moments ago. As the Jewish people were looking forward to a kingdom, they were anticipating a pure kingdom where all were redeemed. And that day's coming when Jesus returns and he establishes his throne here on this earth, and there is an earthly millennial kingdom, physical kingdom. That kingdom will initially be made up of all believers. So this is a mystery age. It was not revealed in the Old Testament that there would be this, this age of the kingdom where there's believers and unbelievers living together, coinciding together. That, that was unknown in the Old Testament. And it is a reminder to us that evil will not be overcome in this age until Christ returns. You understand this, right? We're living in evil days. We're living in wicked days. Satan is the prince of the power of the air, and he remains active. He is not bound, no matter what some people might say. There are some who would hold that Satan is presently bound, as Revelation 20 says. He's not presently bound. He is active. He is free. He is doing his wicked work amongst this world, and that's why there are still sons of the devil. Notice the harvest. Verse 39, and the harvest is the end of the age. He's talking about the end times. He's talking about the time when Christ returns, when that kingdom is about to be established. He's, he's speaking about eschatology here, not ecclesiology. He's talking about the coming of his return, when he establishes his earthly kingdom. And when he does, that's the harvest. Just before the harvest, before the kingdom happens, before he establishes his reign on this earth, there will be a harvest when he comes and executes judgment and there will be a separation there's presently not a separation but there's coming a day when there will be a separation between the sheep and the goats notice verse 39 who the reapers are the reapers are angels i find this very fascinating most of us think of angels as cute chubby beings with a halo on their heads sitting on a 
fluffy cloud playing a harp. Did you know that angels are executioners? Sorry to burst your bubble. Kenneth Gangle says, I doubt that many figurines of punishing angels found their way into gift boxes last Christmas. <laughs> Is your angelology correct? They're the, the executioners of God's judgment. They're ministering servants, and part of their ministry as servants of the Lord is to bring his judgment. And, and all throughout the Old and New Testament, we see this as a reality. I wish we had time. Can I give you just a few references to, to put this clear in your mind? Listen to 2 Chronicles 32, 21. It says, the Lord sent an angel who destroyed every mighty warrior, commander, and officer in the camp of the king of Assyria. Who did that? It was an angel. Listen to the New Testament, Acts 12, verse 23. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck Herod because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and died. An angel did that. I want you to turn to 2 Thessalonians 1. I want you to see this one because this really brings together what we're talking about. Turn over to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Hold your finger here in Matthew 13. Come over to 2 Thessalonians 1, starting in verse 7. Actually, start in verse 6. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well. Now, now notice this, verse 7. When the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, he's coming not as a lamb but as a lion. And when he comes, he's coming with angels in flaming fire. And what will they do? Verse 8, they will deal out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed. Mark my words, Jesus is coming back. And when he comes, he comes with a host of angels who will execute his judgment. You can go back to Matthew 13. Do you know the book of Revelation is full of this? Do you know the seven trumpet judgments in Revelation 8 and 9? Each one of those begins with an angel. Did you know that the bold judgments in Revelation chapter 16 are all unleashed by angels? And did you know that in Revelation chapter 20, when it is talking about Satan being bound, you know the one who binds that? Wicked dragon, it's an angel. Revelation 20, verse 1, I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand, and he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Fascinating. Angels are instruments of God's wrath, executioners of his judgment. And so that, that, that's what this is about. Those, those are all the parts and the pieces. The sower is Jesus. The field is the world. The good seed are believers. The bad seed are unbelievers. The enemy is Satan. The harvest is the end. The reapers are the angels. 
Now, now you've got it framed up in your mind. Now you know what it all is. Now, what's the point? Look at verse 40. Remember the story that he told, the parable of the tares. Here he explains it. So, just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. And what's going to happen then? Verse 41, the Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness. There is a day coming. When Jesus is returning, and when he returns, he's coming with a host of angels, and when they come, they are going to separate out the wicked tares. And how are they going to be recognized? Look at verse 41. They're clearly recognizable because they're stumbling blocks, and they commit lawlessness. So it's very obvious who these people are. It's noticeable by their character, by their outward display, by how they speak, by how they act, by what they do, by what's in their hearts. All of that will be displayed and become very clear, and Jesus, with his angels, will separate them out. And notice verse 42, and he will throw them into the furnace of fire, and in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There's coming a day when those who are lost, who are sons of the devil, will be separated out of this field. And they will be burned in a furnace of fire where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And those two terms reflect, on the one hand, the emotional suffering of hell and the physical agony of hell. There will be weeping, inconsolable, never-ending sorrow, grief, and hopelessness. There is a very real emotional element to hell. And there's a very real physical agony in hell. He says they will gnash their teeth because there will be excruciating pain. And I understand it is hard to think about this and it is hard to preach on and it is hard to even fathom these realities, but the Bible is very clear. Jesus spoke more about hell than heaven. And he didn't mince his words. Hell is not going to be a party. And it is a very real place. Despite what you hear today, and there is a prevalent movement today to deny the reality of the existence of hell. There are many who don't want to believe in hell today, not because the Bible's not clear about it, but because they don't want to believe what the Bible does teach about it. There's people all over teaching there is no real hell. One former megastar church pastor here in Grand Rapids wrote a book on it. 
He's wrong. Hell is real. It is a real place, and real people go there for eternity. I think one of the reasons Jesus speaks this way about hell is to serve as a warning. Not to cause you to fear, but in a sense to cause you to be fearful of the eternal consequences of leaving this life without Christ. It's hard to hear these things. I understand that it's difficult to hear these things. And right now, you're probably sitting here thinking about people you know and people you love that are destined for hell. And it should drive you to compassion. And if you're sitting here today and your eternity is not secure, you don't know where you're going, then this should drive you to Christ. These warnings ought to make you aware of the eternal significance of these realities. If you die and you leave this world without Christ, there is an eternal suffering for you. This is his mercy to us. Right? You understand? This is his kindness to us. In his holiness, he must punish sin, and yet he gives us a warning. He gives us a picture. He tells us what it's going to be like so we can avoid that by embracing Christ. Notice the contrast in verse 43. Then the righteous. This is after the harvest. After they have been removed, after they have been separated, after they have been removed out of the field at the judgment of the sheep and the goats after they've been separated then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father he who has ears let him hear let that sink in you get to shine for all eternity and we do now, we have that now as, as those who know Christ and love Christ. We've been transformed by Christ. He dwells within us. The gospel has transformed us. The Holy Spirit is dwelling in us and we, we shine even now. But there's coming a day when we'll shine even more, when we're glorified. Amen. When these bodies are transformed by the grace and the mercy and the power of Christ and our salvation is brought to its full and final and complete place then we will perfectly reflect the glory of our great God and Savior. Daniel, 9, Daniel 12 spoke about this. Verse 3, those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven and those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. What a contrast. What a contrast. Suffering an eternal torment with weeping and gnashing of teeth. Or living in an eternity with Christ where you shine like the sun forever. So which kingdom do you belong to? Let me give you four implications as we close. These are not on the screen. I encourage you to write these down. Four implications 
Jesus wants us to know what this means. Look at the end of verse 43. He says, he who has ears, let him hear. So here's my question. Are you going to hear this morning? Are you going to hear the message? Are you going to hear the implications? Implication number one, good and evil will coexist. Good and evil will coexist. In this mystery form of the kingdom, between the two comings of Christ, good and evil will coexist. Unbelievers and believers are going to live together side by side in this world. Jesus reigns, yes, but evil remains. And as evil remains, Satan is always at work. And he's always at work to counterfeit God's good work. Don't be surprised by that. In this age, the enemy sows weeds in families and in neighborhoods and in schools and in workplaces and in government and in your dorm and wherever you live and wherever you exist, he will sow these seeds in those fields. So don't be surprised. There will be no perfectly righteous expression of the kingdom of God on earth until the Son of Man returns. Wheat and tares will exist side by side. And so don't, don't be surprised at all by the presence of unbelievers in your life. Second implication. Telling the difference between them can be difficult. Telling the difference between them can be difficult. It can be hard. You, you probably know this. You have people in your life where you, you, you scratch your head. You wonder, are they saved or are they not saved? I don't know. I can't tell. We've talked about it. I just can't tell. And of course you can't because Jesus tells us that there will be tares who look like wheat. So don't be surprised. There will be those who flat out reject Christ. Those are easy to see. But then there are false professions that will appear among God's people and both of them are going to grow together and they may seem like the real thing and you're not going to be able to distinguish between them. And his point here is, is not that Christians should look like the world, but there will be people who, who are ungodly that often appear righteous. That's just the way it is. So if you find yourself struggling to tell the difference, you, you are in good company. Sometimes it's hard to tell. Third implication. We must not attempt to uproot unbelievers. We must not attempt to uproot unbelievers. And I said this at the beginning. Our temptation, sometimes when we rub shoulders with these difficult people, sometimes when, when they get into our life and they, they start to rub us the wrong way, our temptation might be to go after them. This is what the servants wanted to do. They wanted to, to go after them. You want us to clean up those weeds? You want us to deal with that right away? That, that's our tendency. That's human nature. We just want to fix it. We want to solve it. We want to deal with it right away. And so our temptation is to go after them. And Jesus says you need to wait. Don't uproot unbelievers. 
Don't go after them. Don't be the judge, jury. Don't be the form of judgment upon them. You're not God's executioner. You're not called to deal out retribution. This is not a time for judgment. This is a time for proclaiming the gospel. Now is not the time to rip the tares out. And you just need to look at church history and know that when that happens, oftentimes true believers suffer. Go back to the Reformation and what took place under Bloody Mary. She was a religiously zealous person who was completely misguided and in her attempt to root out what she thought were unbelievers, she actually ended up killing a whole host of true believers. Now's not the time for judgment. One writer says, in the present age, believers are not God's instruments of judgment and destruction, but of truth and grace. Toward unbelievers, we are not to have hearts of condemnation, but of compassion. The church is called to preach and teach against sin and all unrighteousness, but in doing that, its purpose is not to judge, but to win souls, not to punish but to convert sons of the evil one into sons of the kingdom. Did you know that sons of the evil one can become sons of the kingdom? You know how you know that? We're all sitting here, right? We were all tares. And by God's grace and the gospel of Jesus Christ, you're sitting here as a son or a daughter of the kingdom of Christ. And if he can do it in your heart, can he not do it in others? You're not called to condemn the world. You're not called to force external reform on the world, but you are called to be an ambassador of Christ. Last implication. Trust Christ to separate evil from good when he returns. Trust Christ to separate evil from good when he returns. Sometimes we get so upset, we get so concerned, we get so unsettled by the presence of wickedness. And listen, I get it. We are watching a nation in moral freefall. We are watching before our very eyes a society imploding. We're watching a transgender agenda take over this world. We're watching the homosexual agenda run rampant. We are watching all kinds of political shenanigans. There is a moral degradation and decay in our society is right before our very eyes. And sometimes we can get frustrated, we can get discouraged by that and almost become hopeless. But the parable teaches us who wins. You know the end of the story. I had a friend friend who was once watching a movie with his kids. And I don't remember the movie, but it was a pretty scary movie, I guess. And his kids were a little affected by this, and and so instead of continuing, he stopped the movie, went to the end, shows them it all turns out fine in the end, and then they could go back and watch the rest of the movie. We're in the middle of the movie, but we know how it ends. Christ 
wins. Christ is triumphant. He is victorious. In fact, he's already won. And he's just waiting to come back and bring to fruition what he's already accomplished. Do you believe that? Do you think about that? Does that affect how you live today? Because sometimes we go throughout the week and the month and the year and we don't think about it and we get despairing and we get discouraged and we get down because we don't keep our eyes fixed on heaven and the reality of our Savior and what he's won at the cross. So do you think about that? So we let the wheat and the tear grow together and we wait for our Savior. And in the meantime, we proclaim the gospel as boldly and as confidently and shamelessly as we can because we want to see tares become wheat and we want to see as many people coming into this kingdom so they can escape the snare of the devil and know him as Lord and know Christ as Lord and Savior. Amen? Lord, we thank you. These are such rich realities, so good for us to hear these things, hard, hard truths at times. But Lord, we thank you for them because these truths keep us soft. They keep us soft to where you've brought us. They keep us soft to the need of those around us. And they remind us of the fact that there is an end And our Savior's coming, and he's already victorious. And when we see him face to face, he is going to sort all of this out, and he's going to make it all right. And we'll behold his glory, and we will shine as the sun forever. So, Lord, we love you. We thank you for the work you've done in us. We pray that you'll continue to use us. Give us hearts of compassion. For those who don't know you, and may you use us, this church, as the vehicle by which you turn tares into wheat for the glory of Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon by Pastor Todd Dykstra, teaching pastor of Maranatha Bible Church in Comstock Park, Michigan, where we exist to display God's glory, declare God's truth, delight in God's Son, and disciple God's people. No part of this digital file may be reproduced or distributed without prior written consent. For permission, go to mbcmi.org.